I'm part of the senior staff team. Uh, I've got the um, uh, particular role of helping the students to work out how to share Jesus with people from other faiths, and in particular the, the Muslim uh, faith. Um, uh, if you want to, if you've got Muslim friends, or if you've got people from other um, faiths, uh, and you want to talk uh, to me about it, uh, I'd love to um, uh, um, spend some time with you. Um, I really enjoy the public meetings uh, normally uh, where we've got large groups, but I think one of the best things about these Bible seminars is the opportunity that we have to be much more interactive. So I'm really hoping and uh, that over the next four weeks as we go through James uh, together that you will stop me uh, every now and then and ask questions. Uh, you can do that by raising your hand uh, just to have a little bit of order. Uh, it's best not to just jump in and uh, override uh, someone else talking. So put up your hand. If you don't ask me questions, I'm going to be asking you questions. Uh, I'm determined to get some interaction happening, okay? Uh, so I'll put that out uh, up front. Um, uh, we're starting by looking at uh, uh, the book of James. Um, James describes the book um, of, well, he describes the whole Bible really as looking um, at a mirror, a mirror for the soul, um, he talks about. And I think one of the, the key things about, looking, about uh, looking at James is that it's very much a, a mirror for your soul because James has lots of practical um, uh, stuff that he wants to share with uh, Christians. Uh, he's got uh, commands, uh, urgings, encouragement. He's got 54 commands in five chapters, which is a record for the New Testament. I think you know where I'm going with all this. There's lots of practical stuff to do in the book of James. And so I'm hoping that you will come along in the next four weeks and learn heaps I want you to learn a lot about God. I hope that's what you do over the course of uh, the whole year in the EU, particularly in Bible studies and in the Bible seminars. But in particular, what we want to get out of the book of James is some kind of practical wisdom for how to run the Christian life. And more than that, we want to encourage each other to actually do what it says, because that's what James keeps on saying. Don't just merely listen. Don't seek to just understand but seek to do what it says. And he says it a few times, okay? He's not just interested in works and uh, wisdom, uh, but he is in particular interested in faith, and he's fairly upfront about that. He's interested in people having, though, a genuine living faith, because later on he'll talk about having a dead faith or a useless faith. What he wants for us is that, so I've decided to call this series a genuine living faith. Okay, um, and today what we're looking at really is a genuine living faith that grows through trials. I hope that is what you want for yourself. I hope you want a genuine living faith. I'm sure most of you would say, I believe in God. If you're not yet a Christian, I hope over the course of time, you will see the evidence there is for Christianity. But if you are a Christian, you believe in God, I'm sure that that is what you will say. You've got faith. But I'm hoping that what you really want is a faith that transforms your life, a genuine living faith. And that's what I hope we'll um, see as we wrestle with uh, the book of James uh, together. So as we do that, how about I pray? And then we'll dive into James together. Let me pray. Uh, our Father, we thank you 
that though we are not perfect, uh, you continue to work in us. Um, Paul describes us as being works in progress. So we pray that you would do an amazing work through your word in the power of your, the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with one another as we look at the book of James together. Please convince us of the truth. Persuade us to keep trusting Jesus and empower us to live a life that pleases him, to do what he wants us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excellent. All right, let's have a look at the book of James. Keep uh, your devices or Bibles open, uh, whatever it is. Um, and let's uh, look at James and go all the way back to uh, verse 1. And you'll notice that James starts by mentioning his name. James. That's the first word that appears in the book of James. So I guess it's a good title for the book. Um, the question is, which James? Which James are we talking about um, when it comes to who wrote this letter? Anyone? All right, let me ask you more general. What Jameses are there in the Bible, in the New Testament, that could have possibly written the letter? Come on. Otherwise, this is going to take a long time, um, and this is an easy question. Come on. Yes. Yes, so there's James, the, the, um, uh, the son of Zebedee, uh, one of the inner tr uh, inner trio of uh, core disciples, uh, Peter, James and John, remember, often taken with Jesus. They saw the transfigured Jesus. But what's interesting about James is that pretty early on, he cops it in the neck. He is slaughtered by King Herod uh, in Acts chapter 12. So only a couple of years after uh, so it's kind of curious, isn't it, that one of the inner three who gets the most experiences is quickly cut out of the scene. Uh, and we don't get to hear much about any ministry that he does at all. Um, so it's, it's not James, uh, the son of Zebedee. Is there any other James that's a possibly a, an apostle? Anyone know of another apostle, that one of the 12 that was called James? Yes. Uh, but he's not one of the 12. No one can think of one of the 12. Very good. Only one person. And that's probably why we think that it's probably not James, the son of Alphaeus, because no one really hears of him all the way through um, the New Testament. And even in church history, we don't really hear much of him. So uh, it's probably not. But he's there. He's mentioned in, um, uh, in the list of the apostles. And then we don't hear of him again, really. Um, so it's probably, but there is James, the, the, the son of Mary and Joseph, half-brother of Jesus, I guess, because Jesus is the son of Mary. Um, and uh, he, at first, was an unbeliever in Jesus. Because remember, in Mark chapter 3, he comes to take hold of Jesus because he thinks he's insane, together with Mary and the rest of his brothers and siblings. But some point... After the resurrection of Jesus, he becomes a, a believer in Jesus. In fact, we see that he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how far he's gone from my brother Jesus um, to um, my older brother Jesus, who thinks he's God or something, uh, to suddenly, well, he is actually God. Yeah. Uh, and what, what we think probably persuaded him is the fact that 
In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, appeared first to the 12 apostles. Then he appears to the 500, probably at the Great Commissioning, and he goes up into heaven. And then he appears to James, it says. And it seems like James had a similar experience to Paul, probably, um, in that G- uh, uh, the resurrected Lord Jesus appears to James and somehow commissions him to be a leader of the church and what we discover in acts 12 and 15 is that he becomes a leader of the jerusalem church in fact in acts 15 james has the final say in the controversy that erupts between paul and and the rest of the apostles Um, peter has his say and then james has the final say and gives the definitive verdict on what they're going to do after that Um, and so uh, in galatians as well we're told that um, James is considered an apostle by uh, Paul and a pillar of the Jerusalem church. Okay, so it seems like James, the leader of the church, is writing to who? Who's he writing to? Quickly, just shout it out because I'm asking you the question. The 12 tribes. The 12 tribes. How does he describe the 12 tribes? So who are the 12 tribes? Quickly. I don't want you to name the tribes. Who, who are we talking about? What people group? The Israelites. The Israelites. Thank you. Um, uh, even though most of the, the 12 tribes didn't exist at that point, they, he, he refers to them as the 12 tribes to remind us that they're the true people of God. But he's not just writing to all the Israelites, is he? Who's he writing to? Those specifically who can call Jesus Lord. Yeah, so it's Christian Jews. And uh, he describes them as being scattered. Um, when were the Jews scattered? Think of the Old Testament. When were the Jews scattered? In the exile, they were scattered off to Babylon. Yeah, um, and interestingly, uh, even after many of the Jews returned to the Promised Land, there were many Jews who lived outside the Promised Land, and they were referred to as the scattered people. Uh, the original says the di- diaspora, and that's the way. Uh, the Jews outside of Jerusalem were were referred to, the diaspora. And here is James talking to the diaspora. Does he just mean to the ones that were exiled from Babylon? Was there another scattering that took place for Jewish Christians? Anyone? Anyone know what happened? Yep, okay. Yes, so kicked out of Jerusalem after uh, the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember when Stephen's martyred in Acts chapter 8 or uh, at the end of chapter 7. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, there was a great persecution and all the disciples, it says, except for the apostles, were scattered. And it seems like James remained in Jerusalem as well. And he's writing to the scattered Christian Jews who were scattered over the rest of the Roman Empire and who were a great blessing because the gospel went out with them. Here is a scattering that actually resulted in blessing for the world. Would have been very hard for the Jews though. And he's writing to them um, because um, it is particularly hard for them as we find out. Um, Because how does he kick off the greeting uh, after he greets them? How does he kick off the letter? He actually says to them, the first words are, all joy, consider it. 
that's the way it reads in the original. Um, and you're thinking, okay, what are we to consider all joy? And you're thinking, oh, well, the fact that Jesus is Lord, the fact that he rose from the dead, the fact that we have a wonderful future, the fact that we have our sins forgiven, all because of what Jesus has done. Yeah? But that's not what he says. What does he say? Consider it all joy what? When? How? When you face trials. Show of hands... Who considers it all joy, pure joy, pure ecstasy when you face a trial of various kinds? Certainly not me. Um, and it looks like not anyone else here. So what James is saying is pretty confronting and pretty hard for us to do. Consider it pure joy. Consider it all joy when you face various trials. Now, the kinds of trials he's talking about, he kind of mentions throughout the letter, um, they're not easy things. Uh, some of the people were being persecuted, as we saw in Acts chapter 8. Some people were being oppressed. They had their property confiscated. Some people were poor and downtrodden by the rich that they um, went amongst. Uh, other people were opposed and slandered and um, uh, etc. Et we can go on and on and on. There's various trials. And honestly, I can say, as a Christian, who's a few years advanced from you guys um, that you will face many, many trials the further you go on in the Christian life. It will become harder and harder as you go on in the Christian life. And so this comes as a bit of a punch in the guts really to the normal values and attitudes that we're told to adopt from the rest of the world. And that's what we need to consider up front. And I'm glad that we're doing that right at the very beginning. That is, the gospel gives us a different set of values to the world, and it's dramatically different, and it ought to dramatically influence the way that we live our lives and our attitude to things happening in the world around us. We have a different approach, therefore, um, and a, particularly a different reaction when both good things or bad things happen to us, or at least we ought to. And one of the key differences ought to be in the way we face trials, according to James. And it's not just James. Peter says the same thing. Uh, Romans 5, Romans 8 says the same thing. Jesus says the same thing. So it's all of the New Testament expects this uh, from us. Um, not that we're to delight in the trials themselves, thankfully. We're not spiritual masochists. Yes, please give me more pain, Lord. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. No, but rather what James is wanting us to do is to delight in what God is doing through the trials. Okay, so my question to you quickly, what is God doing through the trials? Why ought we to consider it pure joy? What's God doing through them? Refining you. Refining you? Yeah. What in particular is he refining? Your faith. Your faith. Yeah. Um, what's the outcome that he's working towards? It's there in the text. You don't look at me. Look at... <laughs> Mature and complete. And there's one extra bit at the end of it? Not lacking anything. 
not lacking anything. So when he's, he's, this is the, he wants you to be a full-on mature Christian. No lack. Okay? That's the outcome. That's the direction. And, and, and James is actually saying that God uses the trials to mature you. To refine you. In fact, the word there for um, that James uses is the word for testing. Um, so when you think of um, the uh, well in the original, when you're thinking that the word that's used um, is often used to refine silver or gold. Um, so he's not he's not talking about um, testing you to see whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, God does do that from time to time. No, this is more about testing you to grow you, to refine you. So if you find a piece of gold, usually there's a whole bunch of other dirt and impurities in the piece of gold. So what do you do with that piece of gold? You put it in a crucible, you heat it under a Bunsen burner or something slightly stronger. And what happens is the gold melts. And as it melts, it tends to spit out all the impurities or you scoop off the scum or whatever it is so that what is left is pure 24 karat gold that's what you're aiming for that's why you put gold through that trial that test if you like of fire and that's what god is saying to us the trials of life are like the fire that god puts under us to refine our faith so that our faith is pure it's mature that's the word that he prefers to use um, complete lacking nothing and i think this command here therefore to consider it pure joy is very very confronting um, because it doesn't equal, uh, easily come to the christian but what I've discovered, and I hope this is what you'll discover, is that over the years, as you go through the trials and as your faith matures, that you actually can start to reflect on what God is doing more and more through them. And as you do that, you start to realize, oh, God is actually good. At first, I was going, what on earth are you doing, God? Why me? This is painful. Are you being malicious? Are you being mean? But as I went through and as I realized that God was refining me, making me more and more like Jesus, to use the language of Paul, that actually God is being faithful and good and helping me to grow in what he sees as valuable. Yeah. And as I reflect on that, I can start to think of, well, God is actually doing a good thing for me and find more and more joy in that. But it doesn't come overnight. It doesn't come quickly. But the more mature you get, the easier it is to consider it joy and to grow in your joy in what God is doing in your life and shaping you. And it makes you realize that he is really doing everything I need in order to make it to heaven. He's doing everything I need at the moment so that in the end, I will have total joy and riches and everything I ever wanted. Can I put it like that? God wants Christians, in verse 4, to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay. 
we're not, it's not saying that the trials of life um, and what we go through is therefore an entirely passive process, but rather um, it says there in verse uh, four, where to let perseverance. Is that what you've got in your, can someone read it out for me? Someone got the new NIV? Let perseverance, what? Read the rest. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're meant to be doing. But um, in case that's not clear, verse 5 goes on. Can someone read verse 5? It's a connected thought. Don't think this is disconnected. And I'll ask you in a tick how it's connected, but go. What's verse 5 say, someone? Okay, so what's the word that connects verse 4 and 5 together? That's the word that connects the two sentences, but it's the lack word that's the same in both, yeah? Um, what are we lacking? What is it that we can possibly lack? Well, it's wisdom. That is, well, let me start by asking you the question, what is wisdom? I want you to talk to the people around you for one minute and come up with a one-sentence definition of wisdom, Okay. What is wisdom? Quick, get going. If someone has a definition, put your hand up. Keep talk if you don't keep talking. Okay, this group stopped talking. Um, what's the definition? Knowledge from God. Knowledge from God. Okay, that's a good start. Anyone want to add anything to that or expand on that? Sorry? Building, did you say? Building on God's love and faithfulness. Yep. Anyone else? Go. How to apply knowledge well. Yeah, I think you're all on the, uh, the, the, the right pathway. Um, this is the way I. We, my definition is wisdom is the practical know-how to do God's will in any given circumstance. Yeah, it's the practical know-how to do God's will. So in order to do God's will, you've got to know God's will, but it's more than just knowing God's will. It's actually knowing God's will and how to do it in any circumstance of life. And in particular, it's the trials of life that are fairly confronting. They're the ones that make it very hard for us sometimes to work out what is God's will. How do I put it into practice in this situation? Because this situation is really hard. Um, life is not always clear. It's not always black and white. And the more you go on, the more you'll realize that sometimes I need wisdom, a lot of wisdom to work out what to do in this particular situation. Um, so what should I do if I get into that situation? The first thing I should do is pray. Ask God for wisdom. And notice what the promise is here. It says that God will give generously. 
He will give him bucket loads. That is, God doesn't want you to fail the test. God really, really, really wants you to pass, to mature, to become complete. And so he will not just give you a little bit of wisdom, he will give you bucket loads of wisdom in order to do that. He's not, he's not one of those tricky examiners who, who sets the hardest task that you could possibly imagine with, you know, uh, kind of roundabouts and curveballs thrown all the way through it. So you're going, oh, I don't know how I'm going to possibly pass this exam. No. He's going, here's a test, and let me help you get through it. I'll give you everything you need and more in order to get through it, you see? Because I really want you to grow and mature and get through it all. Too often people think that God is stingy, that he's hard, that he's setting up this whole life as a a trick and a hard test so that we will fail as if he's having a feast in heaven and a ball in heaven as we, as we go about squirming through life. But it's not like that at all. He's actually very generous. We know that from the gospel. God gave his one and only son so that we can get to heaven. And he's given it all on a plate as if he's going to be hardball for the rest of our lives. If he's done that right from the beginning, he's certainly going to carry us through all the way to the end. That's why we should consider everything that God does for us with pure joy. We know that we're not going to miss out, don't we? You've got to believe that. You've got to believe that God is, if he gave Jesus to you, he's going to give you everything in the end. He means to give you everything. He doesn't want you to miss out. That's why he's doing these trials, this testing, so that your faith will mature, so that you will get everything in the end riches, all the desires of your heart will be satisfied according to Psalms. He doesn't want you to miss out. But so often we think that the Christian life is missing out. And that's why we find it hard to consider it pure joy. Because we just think God is doing yet another thing to make me miss out. All right. Here's the thing as well. Notice that it says God will give without finding fault without finding fault. That is, I may have failed the test a thousand times before. And if you're like me, you probably have. But even if I ask in this particular occurrence and I ask him for wisdom, I want to pass this one. I don't want to fail again. He will give generously even without finding fault. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's terrific. He just wants to give it to us so that we get there. That's what he wants to do. All right. Now, verse 6, though, you must ask with faith and not doubt. Okay, quickly, what do you think that means? Quick discussion among yourselves. 30 seconds this time because we don't have much time left. And tell me what you think it means. What does he mean? You've got to ask in faith without doubting. Now, I'm going to tell you, here's a clue. Read to verse 8. I think that will help you. Mm-hmm. 
All right, anyone venture as to what it means? Give me a quick, what are we doubting? What's it mean? We're asking faith without doubting. What's, it, what's he talking about? Come on, surely you, you came up with something. <laughs> okay, this table, what did you come up with? To like ask and like, not just like ask as like a hope, like, oh, why not ask? Like to actually believe. That he'll, gi- that he'll give it to you. So believe that he will give it to you, that he's able to give it to you. Maybe that he, uh, his goodness will provide it for you, that he's not going to withhold it from you. Yep. Any, any other thoughts? I guess having faith that the answer that God gives uh, is worthy of actioning out and not kind of supporting that against our wisdom and trying to fight against the food, just having faith in Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's going on the right on the right path. Because what what you notice is it's not really he's not talking about intellectual doubt whether something's true. Um, All faith has some sort of intellectual doubt in it, if uh, because we're not talking about perfect knowledge yet. So we're never completely sure about everything. That's why we trust. We've got enough evidence to go with what we think is solid, reliable evidence. But we don't know everything. So my, my thought to you is if, if you've got those kinds of doubts, nothing wrong with that. Healthy faith has a bit of doubt. Ask away. Ask your questions. Don't think that God doesn't like that. But this isn't talking about intellectual doubts. It's talking about split loyalties. Because what he goes on to say is a double-minded man. And what he means by that as we go through the letter is some people, you see, we're, we're asked to be loyal to God on God's side, if you like to use his language, friends with God. But most of us also want to be friends with the world. And he says you can't be both. That's double-minded. I go through a trial. What am I thinking? I'm thinking... I want what the world wants, which is ease and comfort and pain-free existence. I want to be happy in the here and now. That's what the world values. And so sometimes when I'm asking God for wisdom to live his way, what I really want is actually I want to live that way. I just re- and my prayers often resort to, please, God, just take it away from me rather than, okay, God, you're obviously wanting to teach me something. You want me to grow. How can I grow? What can I do to grow through this circumstance? Rather than, please take it away because this is really what I want to do. <laughs> and this is the way I want to live. That's double-mindedness because you want to put one foot in the world, one foot in God's camp. And it's like being on a boat and a wharf when the boat's being let out to see what's going to happen. You'll end up wet. It won't work. And the point here is that God wants us to be single-minded, devoted to Him, valuing what He values and not valuing what the world values. And what God values above all else is your faith so that you become mature and complete, lacking nothing. What the world values is that you become wealthy and comfortable and ease and and, uh, enjoy life to the full. Um, uh, Opposite directions. And therefore, they'll treat trials in completely different ways. The trial that the Christian will go through, though, he will recognize or she will recognize that they're useful and helpful to achieve what God wants in my life. Okay, 
All right. Now we've run out of time. Um, uh, uh, maybe next week we can uh, focus on the temptations. They are connected. Um, there is the trial of poverty and riches, um, which we won't talk about, but hopefully we'll come back and we'll talk about verses 13 to 17 uh, next week. Is that okay? Uh, I hope that's enough to go with. Let me pray, and then I think I'll hand it back to um, Eamon. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are good to us, that you uh, promise um, that you'll give us wisdom um, in bucket loads uh, when we face trials and we need it. Uh, we pray that you would do your work in us so that we become mature and complete, lacking nothing. And we pray this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.